0: Let me tell you a story, podcast number one.
1: It was the best of times. It was the worst of
0: times. Call me
1: Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Was the age of never mind it is a how truth long The This a little of You
2: don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story, with hosts Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, I'm
0: Steve.
1: Hi, I'm Becky. Welcome to our first Let Me Tell You a Story podcast.
0: We're newbies at this podcast business, but thanks to the audio expertise of our son, Toby and the computer expertise of our son, Brady, we think your listening experience will be fairly painless.
1: Our plan for Let Me Tell You a Story is to read essays, short stories, book excerpts, poems, and quotations by a variety of authors. Today, we have several readings related to this unique time of year when crocuses and daffodils pop up just in time to be buried by 10 inches of snow.
0: Speaking of snow, we'll start with a humorous piece about our former place of residence, Wyoming. This poem is often shared by Wyoming lovers, or maybe haters, but no one seems to know who the author is, unless it's someone named Anonymous. And it's called Wyoming Poem. It's winter in Wyoming, and the gentle breezes blow 70 miles an hour at 25 below. Oh, how I love Wyoming, when the snow is up to your butt. You can take a breath of winter and your nose gets frozen shut. Yes, the weather here is wonderful, so I guess I'll hang around. I could never leave Wyoming because
1: I'm frozen to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in Wyoming, and Steve and I raised our family there. It's true, Wyoming can be chilly, but it's a beautiful place that still holds my heart. Our longtime friend Pam McCleary has the answer to cold weather in a story she wrote about growing up in Indiana. She titled her vignette, My Grandmother's Quilt. As far back as I can remember, Grandma Craig's quilts both intrigued me and comforted me. Her arthritic hands worked tirelessly, cutting and stitching and hemming. Sewing, she said, kept her hands from becoming too stiff. My siblings and I were the grateful recipients of her exercise. Her workspace was set up in the enclosed front porch. She spent hours there listening to the radio and sipping postum while she magically created works of art from small scraps of leftover fabric. As a child, though, I did not look upon those heavy quilts as art. Rather, I saw them as much appreciated as a much appreciated necessity. For it was cold beyond belief most winter nights in our drafty country house that sat alone on the hill. Those quilts, heavy with memories, were the only things that kept us from freezing. The house had no heat or insulation. Snow blew into our bedroom through the cracks in the windowsills. I don't think I ever appreciated anything as much as I did the warmth her quilts brought us. When Grandma bestowed upon us this gift of labor and love, she would caress each square. As the quilt unfolded, so did her memories. She shared with us the story of each piece. Most of the squares had come from clothing she'd made for her family, many pieces being remade to fit the next child in line. Grandpa's suit became my dad's suit, or my aunt's new skirt and jacket. Aunt Joe's suit became Aunt Sandy's, updated to fit the current style. Eventually, those clothes were cut down to fit me. After they had served their time as wearable art, they became the squares of the next quilt. Each one was a chapter in Grandma's life, a story that had no ending. Each little square was stitched to the next one until there was a lifetime of memories. So woven together, they became one beautiful mosaic of her life. Grandma was not one to talk much except when she was sharing her quilts with us. It was her way of sharing her life. I wish I had asked her more questions because her stories have become a part of my stories. I have squares to add to her quilt, chapters that allow her stories to continue, to come alive again. I love seeing photos of me as a child wearing clothes that eventually became a part of that quilt. It is a reminder that I am a part of history and that I need to find a way to share my stories. My story quilt may never warm anybody's body, but hopefully it will warm their heart.
0: Keep that quilt wrapped around you grab a cup of cocoa while I read a fiction piece by Becky titled Maddie Cummins. Maddie Cummins looked both ways before she slid her hand into her coat pocket. Yes, the weapon was still there. She checked before entering the building, but knowing it remained within easy reach was crucial to her mission. Seventeen days had passed since her last conquest, leaving her desolate and hollow, a mere shell of a woman but today would change everything. She stroked the sleek metal and felt her heart rate slow. The solid, reassuring curves soothed her in the same way petting her cat, Sophronius, calmed her frayed nerves. Her breath evened out, and two and a half weeks of tension drained from her shoulders. She removed her hand from her pocket. No more pacing her two-room flat no more sleepless nights, no more denying herself. Tonight, she would celebrate. She'd eat that last slice of chocolate bar, the one she'd purchased a month ago, and cut into seven precise pieces, God's number for perfection. Thinking of the Swiss confection made her mouth water. She swallowed and with soundless steps began to weave her way through the cavernous building. Her plan had been to treat herself to a chocolate slice following each victory and to finish the candy bar within two weeks, three at the most. The first week, she'd had one glorious triumph after another. Not bad for a 67-year-old, never-been-dependent-on-a-man-single-woman. It, it was while piece number six was melting on her tongue 17 days ago that she'd planned her next move and dared to dream of her reward, a jelly donut. But the best laid plans of mice and men. Maddie compressed her lips. She would pushed her luck by gazing too far into the future without a crystal ball. That's what her grandmother Jenkins would have said. Maddie rubbed the underside of her nose with her knuckle. And then Rena May, her great aunt, would have added her two bits. The book of Proverbs talks about a woman who laughed at the future, Matilda. Whenever her great aunt mentioned the laughing woman, her grandmother her grandmother, was quick to say the only laughable thing anyone could know about the future was that there'd be plenty more crackpots like the batty lady in the Bible. Maddie sighed. Her elderly caretakers had argued about everything. She neared her target. Her heart began to drum her ribs again, and her palms grew moist. But she squared her shoulders, determined to complete her mission— This was the moment she'd been waiting for. She mustn't panic. Maintaining a discreet distance from her objective, she surveyed her surroundings. For two weeks, her career had been stymied. First, a a vagrant had taken over the corner across from her apartment building. His grease-rimmed hat only partially covered his long, stringy hair, and his clothes were filthy. For some unfathomable reason, He'd picked the wall of the opposing apartments for a backrest or maybe for a stage because that's where he sat, strumming a battered guitar and greeting passers-by. She, for one, ignored him. It was bad enough. The neighborhood troublemakers sprawled on the curbs, spouting bad language and blasting loud music on those boombox things. Now a strange, dirty man was out there all day, every day. She'd gotten nowhere with her landlord when she complained about the noisy hoodlums, and when she asked him to call the police to report the bum, he'd said she could call them herself or take up the matter with the other building's manager. Before her mettle failed her, Maddie had marched directly from his office to the street corner and pushed the walk button. Thank God she'd been wearing her longest skirt and the wind wasn't blowing. Her grandmother had warned her that men sometimes faked disabilities and stooped to begging so they could peek up women's dresses. While she waited for the light to change, the haunting uh, notes of a harmonica had risen between passing cars. When she located the source of the sound and saw that the tramp had an instrument in his mouth, she frowned. Just because he had an ear for Melody didn't make him safe, after all. He was a man. Once she was on the other side of the street, Maddie had scurried past the man, hugging her ribs and avoiding eye contact, despite the fact he was playing Danny Boy, her grandmother's favorite song. She'd never tell a beggar, but the song was especially beautiful coming from a harmonica. In all her 41 years in the neighborhood, Maddie had never before entered the other apartment building. The office was at the side of the foyer, a notice on the window had informed her that the manager, a Mr. Barinsky, was out of town. All inquiries should be directed to the regional management company. Rereading the notice, she shoved her fist into her coat pockets. Her telephone plan was limited to local calls, so she wouldn't be able to dial the out-of-state number. Even if, even if she'd had friends and relatives in another town, her pension didn't allow for extravagances like long-distance service. She'd exited the apartment house to the tune of Amazing Grace, her great aunt Rena May's favorite song, and chanced a glance at the man huddled against the building. How did he know? He winked at her, but kept playing. Maddie rubbed her cheeks, which were now hot with the memory of that humiliating moment. She shuddered. Such impudence. Her grandmother was right. But he wasn't her only impediment. Her second roadblock had come in the form of the snoops with the furrowed foreheads and prying eyeballs, who'd spied on her every move, ogling her like she was a common criminal, which of course she wasn't. She was a female William Wallace. Maddie closed her eyes and pictured her handsome hero. Oh, how she loved that Braveheart movie. Like the Scots, her townspeople needed her. Ma'am, are you Okay. A young young woman was standing between the cash register and the dressing room, her head tilted to the side and her thick eyebrows clumped like dueling hedges. Maddie gave her a sideways glance. The salesgirl stepped closer. What was this? Another barrier? Maddie straightened. She waited too long to be thwarted again. I'm... She cleared her throat. I'm fine. A little dizzy spell, that's all. She touched her temple for effect. Even if she wasn't actually nauseated, the girl's perfume was potent enough to make an elephant woozy. Oh, dear, the young woman petted Maddie's arms. You should sit down. We have a chair right over there. I don't think... The girl pulled her toward the chair. But, after depositing Maddie on the padded seat, she said, I'll get you some water and be right back. If you feel like you're going to pass out, put your head between your knees. The moment the pushy do-gooder rounded a corner, Mattie jumped to her feet. She had to act, and act now. No perky size two with wayward eyebrows and cheap cologne was going to ruin her day. She wouldn't dream of sitting in the middle of a department store with her head hanging between her legs. What an asinine suggestion. The sudden movement made Maddie feel lightheaded, which was a bit of a relief. Her little white lie wasn't a lie after all. She hoped her great-aunt, who hated fibs and whose spirit surely inhabited her favorite store, understood what had just happened. She clutched the back of the chair to steady herself, all the while hearing her grandmother's voice in her head, Time's a-wastin' girlie, time's a-wastin'. Maddie regained her equilibrium and strode in her no-nonsense leather walking shoes to where she'd been standing before she was so imprudently interrupted. Even if the girl had been sent to spy on her, Maddie Cummins would not be stopped today. She'd do the job and zip into the escalator before those snappy little high heels could tap-tap their way back to her. She peered at where she'd last seen her target. Good. Still there. Thank her lucky stars. Mid-afternoon had always been the best time to work. She inspected the surrounding area. All clear. All clear. Grasping her weapon, she lifted it from the bottom of the big pocket and stepped closer. Drawing in a breath, she took aim. One snip of the fingernail scissors and the sweater's spare, buttons, uh, sp- spare button was hers. Maddie caught the plastic packet with her free hand and dropped it into her other pocket. She had to clamp her lips between her teeth to contain a shout as she hopped a tight circle between the clothing racks, her clenched fist and scissors raised above her shoulders. At the conclusion of her victory dance, she once again faced her target, a bulky gray and white striped button-down sweater. She touched the big top button. What a beauty. Its pearl luster glowed in the fluorescent lighting. The matching button in her pocket would be a marvelous addition to her collection. Maddie smiled nothing was sweeter than cuddling under her buttons her button quilt's cozy warmth with sophronius who had been named after saint sophronius of jerusalem her great aunt's favorite saint sophro liked to sleep with her between the heavy blanket but hated to walk on the buttons he'd lift his paws and hiss even swat at the hard objects obviously annoyed by the unpredictable surface surface, surface. After years of sewing one beautiful button at a time onto the flannel backing, she was pleased, but sad she had room for only a few more. With the newest addition, the total account would be 3,579 buttons. Many pursed her lips. What would she do when she ran out of space? Could she add more fabric? Oh, but it was getting so heavy. Oh, here you are. Ms. Eyebrows came scurrying toward her. "'Sorry I was so slow with the water. I was laid by a—' The girl stared at the scissors in Maddie's hand. "'What are you—' Maddie dropped the scissors into her pocket and straightened her coat collar. "'I know it's impolite to practice personal hygiene in public, "'but my fingernail snagged this sweater, "'and I didn't want it to catch on the others.' She prayed great Aunt Rena May hadn't heard her spew yet another untruth. Once she'd practiced over and over for moments like this. The girl raised an eyebrow. I carry a nail file. Oh, so do I. In my purse, which I forgot. Silly me. Oh, dear. Another fabrication. Sleep would be long in coming tonight. Well, here's your water. Glad to see you're on your feet again. I need to get back to work. Throw the cup in that trash can over there when you're finished. Thank you, Miss... Maddie glanced at her name tag. Abigail, I'm quite grateful for your concern. As Abigail trotted away, Maddie dropped her chin to her chest. Her pulse pounded on her ears, and she could smell the sweat dripping from her armpits down her sides. The odor of her fear mingled with the heady scent that followed the girl's wake. Maddie released a long breath. That was a close one. Maybe she could find a new vocation. Maybe she should find a new vocation. But she looked around the woman's department. So many buttons, so many beautiful buttons, and the aroma. She sniffed and then sniffed again. Oh, how she loved the department store's fragrance, which always brought back memories of shopping with her grandmother and her great aunt. She flipped through the other sweaters on the rack. Red buttons, yellow buttons, silver buttons. Mm, There was a square copper-colored set. Delightful. She searched for a spare button, but didn't see one. Oh well, there'd be others. Something crunched beneath her foot. Maddie bent down and found a packet filled with buttons, at least five of them. Her knees popped when she stood, but she didn't mind. The buttons reflected a dazzling rainbow of colors, but one was broken. Not good. If only she'd known the packet was on the floor. Surely she would have salvaged it. Miss Cummins, what have you got there? Mattie whipped around. A big, bald man in a black uniform was staring at her. His beefy hands on his wide leather belt. His name tag name tag declared him to be Harold M. Security. She shoved the buttons at him. I found these on the floor, but I didn't know that sweater. I didn't know what sweater they go to. He snorted. Found them, huh? Maddie narrowed her eyes. Was he accusing her of something? And how did he know her name? You seem to have a you seem to have a way of finding buttons. He snatched the packet from her fingers. So, what'd you use to cut li- these loose? She raised her palms. I didn't, I swear I didn't. Her voice quaked. Cross my heart, hope to die. They were on the floor. Harold M security waggled the button packet under her nose. I want you to find the sweater these belong to and find it now. After that, we'll take a little trip to my office to pat you down. Maddie gasped and stepped back, knocking two coats off their hangers. She reached for one. Stop. Wide-eyed, she gaped at the security guard, who puffed his chest like a grouse readying for a courtship dance and emphasized his words with staccato finger stabs. Find that... "'Sweater, now, Matilda Lorraine Cummins.' She dropped the coat. He knew her full name, but how and why? With trembling hands, she slid one sweater after another across the bar, barely able to breathe. Though she peered intently at each garment, she didn't see any with buttons even remotely similar to the ones she'd found. Harold M. Security folded his arms. "'Okay, you're off the hook this time.' But you know what this means. He walked over to the trash can and tossed the buttons in it. Maddie moaned, all those gorgeous buttons headed for the landfill. Step by heavy step, he moved close again, this time nose to nose. Maddie tried to stand her ground, but his nearness was almost more than she could bear. Not only was his breath worse than her cat's, she'd never let a man get so close before. This means the person who bought that sweater will one day lose a button, maybe two. Those overseas workers don't waste much thread these days. But will our customer be able to replace a missing button? No. Why? Because they didn't get any spare buttons worth of purchase. He pointed to the garbage can. Each garment in this store, Miss Cummins, has specially designed buttons unique to that article of clothing. Sure, the person who bought that sweater could sew on any old button. But that's not the point. Our customers buy designer garments with designer buttons. The cost includes the matching replacement buttons. They ought to be able to take those buttons home with them. He squinted at her. Don't you agree? Maddie managed a small nod. She hadn't thought of it that way before. And wouldn't you agree that if I had deposited those buttons... In my pocket, rather than throwing them in the trash, I would be stealing them. But her lips trembled. Throwing away perfectly good buttons, well, except for the broken one, was a terrible waste. He tapped her collarbone. Maddie retreated into the coat rack again. Do you agree that taking buttons is thievery? She lowered her gaze. She'd always thought of extra buttons as just that, extras, Every time she'd visited the store with her guardians, Grandmother Jenkins had gone on and on about what a waste of spare buttons were. They'd be thrown away when a buyer took the skirt or blouse or dress home, filling garbage cans across the city and ultimately overflowing the landfill with plastic that would not, could not, decompose for thousands, maybe millions of years. Great Aunt Rena May would pat her agitated sister's arm. Now, Matilda, you know God is going to destroy this old earth and create a new one someday soon. Don't let something as trivial as buttons raise your blood pressure. Despite her aunt's words, Maddie had taken up the cause. She considered herself a heroine, one who was was doing a noble deed by using the buttons for a good cause rather than leaving them for others to discard and banish to the city dump. The officer's finger was now aimed at her nose. Maddie watched it jab with each word. Miss Cummins, answer my question. She uncrossed her eyes. Yes, sir, officer, sir. She would agree to anything he said, so he wouldn't take her to his office. God only knew where all that padding would lead. Maddie scurried past the vagrant who was playing his guitar and singing a vaguely familiar song. As always, she walked on the far edge of the sidewalk. He called. Have a good evening, but she didn't give him the satisfaction of a response. Inside her apartment building, Maddie passed the elevator and stomped the four flights to her flat. She'd encountered more than enough men for the day, for the year, and she didn't care to chance riding an elevator with a member of that species right now. Harold M. Security hadn't frisked her, but he'd suggested in so many words that she not return to the store. Of all the nerve! She'd shopped there since she was a child. Who was he to deny her access? At the top of the stairs, her elderly neighbors sweeping dust bunnies into the hallway. Maddie cringed. She didn't feel neighborly at the moment. He nodded. Good evening, Maddie. Good evening, Gus. He rested both hands on the broom handle. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. And you? Storm coming in. Gus grimaced and grabbed his back. "'My lumbago is acting up.' "'I appreciate the warming.' "'Maddie unlocked the door to her flat. "'Good night.' "'Even before she turned the knob, Maddie heard Sofro yowling. "'She sighed. "'Yet another male to harass her. "'If she hadn't found him wandering in the alley, half-starved when he was a kitten, "'she certainly would never have purposely acquired a tomcat. "'I'm coming, I'm coming!' She pushed the door open. The big feline was already seated in front of the refrigerator. Maddie huffed. Silly cat, I get the message, loud and clear. After dinner, she turned off the lights, lit a candle, and settled with Sofro and a cup of chamomile tea on the window seat. She'd started reading a library book a couple nights ago, but tonight she couldn't read. The day had been long and hard, and she was weary. She'd been so eager to sew another button onto the quilt. But after what happened at the store, she knew the button, which was still in her coat pocket, would be the final addition. Along with sewing it on, she'd have to rearrange some of the other buttons so there'd be no bare spots. Movement on the corner below her window caught her eye. She leaned forward. It was that beggar man again, dragging something. Why was he still there? Did he think he owned the corner or what? When he passed under the streetlight, she could see a crutch under one arm and what looked like a flattened cardboard box under the other. Working with one hand, he arranged the rectangle on the winter brown grass next to the apartment wall. The mangy dog that prowled the neighborhood materialized in the lamppost's circle of light. She watched the man lie down on the cardboard and motioned to the dog, which joined him on the makeshift mat. They curled together in what appeared to be a familiar routine. Then the bum wrapped his arm around the mutt. Maddie rubbed her neck. Why hadn't she noticed the man and dog pairing up at night? Sofro climbed into her lap and began to purr. She stroked his soft fur. Could be she hadn't seen them because she closed the drapes when she switched on her lights so the people who lived across from her couldn't see into her flat. She moved the cat and her teacup and drew the curtains. Somehow, it felt like an invasion of privacy to watch a vagabond and stray dog sleep, even though they were outside where anyone could see them. She checked the clock. One half hour before bedtime. Just enough time to sew some buttons. Not that she felt like sewing. Tonight should have been an evening of celebration, yet she hadn't even bothered with a chocolate piece. This was a night to mourn, not rejoice. Her quilt had lost its luster, and she had lost her purpose. Pushing through the fog that threatened to smother her brain and shackle her body, she crossed the room to turn on the light and fumble in her coat pockets for the button and scissors. She pulled her sewing basket from the top shelf of the closet and sat down on the end of the bed. In the early years, she'd carried the quilt to the living area to attach new buttons, but the blanket had gotten so heavy that nowadays she only moved it off the bed to change the sheets. Sofro stepped over the buttons, snuffling and lifting his paws in disdain. Finally, he reached his objective, her pillow, and curled up into a tight ball on top of it. When he wrapped his paws around his eyes, Maddie shook her head. Is it really that bad? What was supposed to take 30 minutes took three hours. Her back ached, her eyes hurt, her fingers were stiff and sore, If she hadn't had to decide which buttons could be moved without leaving big gaps and what colors, sizes, and shapes went best together, she might have made better progress. Although she wasn't completely happy with the final product, at least she could say the quilt, which had been years in the making, was finished. Maddie rubbed her eyes and yawned. Surely the moment was worthy of that final piece of chocolate. But instead of jubilation, emptiness had once again invaded her soul. The next morning, she awoke to a raucous clang of her wind-up alarm clock. Although she tossed and turned for hours, she must have eventually fallen asleep. She hit the button on the vibrating clock. Sofro jumped to the floor with an irrigated, irritated growl. Maddie pushed up against the headboard. Why had she set the alarm so early? Oh, yes. She threw the covers aside, grabbed her robe, and hurried to the big window. She opened the drapes. The sun was peeking between the buildings. As far as she could see in the growing light, trees, bushes, buildings, and vehicles were coated with a soft layer of white. Moments later, sunshine shimmered off the treetops. Maddie smiled. She'd put a leash on Sofro and take him for a stroll after breakfast. He didn't particularly enjoy walking in the snow, but she'd made him little cat-sized booties that helped him tolerate the cold. As if he knew what she was thinking, Sofro joined her on the window seat. She peered at the corner across the street. The man and the dog were gone. Maybe they'd found a warmer spot. She hoped so. She was about to turn away when the snow rippled and swelled. Then the dog's head popped out. She jumped. Oh my, Sofro, that was a surprise. The mongrel looked around for a moment before lurching out of the snowdrift. Sofro snarled. After a quick shake, the dog trotted up the street and disappeared from view. She saw the man slowly emerge and sit with his back against the wall. He blinked at the brilliant shaft of sunlight that illuminated him. Even from four stories up, she could see his puzzled expression. Maybe he hadn't heard the forecast. He brushed snow from his hat and jacket, but then stopped and stared at his legs. After a long moment, he raised his crutch. "'and pulled to a standing position. "'After steadying his stance, he reached down and, "'with apparent effort, lifted something "'and wrapped it around his shoulders. "'Snow cascaded off in a whoosh of icy sparkles. "'Button after button caught the sunshine "'and refracted it to the waking world. "'Like a king decked out in bejeweled regalia, "'the man without a home stood tall and proud. "'He turned his face to the sky The wide, toothless grin that creased his thin cheeks warmed Maddie's heart. She couldn't hear him, but she could see his mouth move. Thank you. She hugged her cat. He likes it, Sophro. He really likes it. Sophro patted her cheek with his paw. Ah, you're such a sweet kitty. Maddie set him on the seat and went to the cupboard. This calls for celebration. Canned salmon for you and Swiss chocolate for me. Sofro lifted his other paw and began to lick it, purring louder than she'd ever heard him purr
1: before. Thank you, Steve. Here's another cool season story titled Smile Jesus Loves You. And this begins in uh, California and moves to Colorado. You can find this true ex-inmate story along with several others in my book titled, On a Wing and a Prayer, Stories from Freedom Fellowship, a Prison Ministry. And this uh, ex-inmate's name is Shanna. I was raised in an abusive household where my parents did bad, bad things to me and my siblings. I have a scar on my chin from the unopened pop can my mom threw at me when I was 15. I remember her chasing us with butcher knives and I can still hear her screaming, quit complaining and eat your breakfast as I watch roaches fall out of the cereal box and into my bowl along with the cereal. Ours is a pagan home. God and Jesus were just swear words. My parents worshipped Mother Earth. They took me and my siblings to Renaissance fairs. Not that the fairs are necessarily bad, but mystics go to them and practice cultic activities there. I was eight years old the first time I smoked pot, At around 12 years of age, I started using LSD and other hallucinogens. By the time I was a teenager, I was addicted to methamphetamines, or speed in street language. I used speed just about any way you can think of it, except for slamming it. I smoked it, ate it, and snorted it. Because I didn't shoot it, I was convinced I wasn't a junkie. But that's what I was. The first time I ran away, I was 14 years old. The authorities found me and took me home. Every time I ran away and was caught, the cops took me back. They didn't know any better. They didn't know about our home life. Finally, I got old enough and far enough away from home. They didn't bother me anymore. I roamed the country following the Grateful Dead and going to rainbow gatherings with a guy named Shannon. We traveled together for seven years. One dark, cold night when I was 19, we were wandering around San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, looking for the bedrolls and backpacks we'd stashed behind a bush. Chilled through and through, we were anxious to return to the warm bonfire we'd been enjoying with a group of friends in the middle of the park. Golden Gate Park is a deep park, miles long. We had to get to the front of the park in order to find our belongings. After searching for some time, we stopped to ask a woman with long, black dreadlocks for directions. Her back was to us, and she was fiddling with a bicycle. When she turned around, her face was ugly and distorted. There was an evil aura about her that gave us a really yucky feeling. We were on a lot of hallucinogens, a whole lot, and that could have affected our perception. But we got lost using her directions. Plus, a black cat followed us, weaving in and out of the bushes beside us as we struggled to find our way. Shannon said the woman was a witch and she was going to slash our faces to yearn off our young beauty. That really scared me. Finally, we found our things and returned to the bonfire. I was still feeling terribly frightened, so Shannon pulled a tract out of his pocket with the title, Smile, Jesus Loves You, on the front. We'd been panhandling on Hyde Street earlier in the day, and someone had given him a dollar and a tract. Shannon, who'd grown up in church, told me the story of Jesus. That was the first time I can remember hearing about him. I didn't know anything about God. Shannon opened this tract, and we read the five or six scriptures in it over and over again, all night long. I prayed that night to receive Christ into my heart. I remember thinking to myself, I want to be just like Christ, just like someone who would die for me. I was amazed he could love me when my own parents didn't love me. Actually, I don't think it's that they didn't love me. They just didn't know how to be parents. I sensed immediately that having Jesus in my heart was what I'd been searching for. I knew it was the truth. I never questioned it. I just believed it. And I wanted to know more. I wanted to know everything there was to know about this person who died for me. But I continued to live the same way on the streets, stealing and doing lots of awful things to get money. I even stole a Bible out of a motel room. We eventually ended up at the Rainbow Gathering in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains in Colorado, which is kind of ironic when you think about it, because. It means the Blood of Christ Mountains. From there, we went to Boulder, Colorado. The weather was turning cold, so we rented a room for the winter near the Colorado University campus. We we lived with some other people and continued to commit crimes. In early November, we wrote a bunch of bad checks in Fort Collins and stole a lot of stuff from stores, then returned to Boulder. An employee at one of the stores wrote down the license number of our driver's car. When the cops located our driver, he gave them our address. Now, this is the strangest thing. That same day in November, I was walking to 7-Eleven without shoes because I rarely wore shoes. A woman working in her yard stopped me as I passed her house and asked if I was cold. She told me she felt like she needed to pray with me. I have no idea what made her say that to me. It had to be God because I looked just like everybody else in that neighborhood. When she invited me into her home, I went inside and we knelt down together to pray. She said, You have to give God everything. I started crying. I told her my story and how I was tired of the way I was living. I was a thief, a liar, a cheat, and a strung out skin and bones drug addict. I was tired of stealing money to get more drugs, to make more money, to get more drugs, to make more money, to get more drugs. I was tired of living on the streets and happy to be living in a room for a while. But I knew we wouldn't be there for long because we didn't have jobs or other income. She told me to talk to God every day like I would talk to a best friend. That was the day I surrendered my life to Christ. Later on that day, the cops came to our door. They sur- they searched our place and found all kinds of stolen stuff, but they didn't have a warrant to arrest us. Before they left, they told us they'd be back the next day to take us into custody. That's really what they said. Be here at 1 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, because we are going to come back with a warrant to arrest you. We bought some drugs, got high, and caught a bus to a KOA campground in Colorado Springs. Then we did a couple really dumb things. We lit some firecrackers, which caught the attention of the KOA manager, and we ordered a pizza with a suspicious check, which caught the attention of the restaurant manager, who called the police. We were arrested that night and put in jail, and I never used drugs again. I spent three months in the El Paso County Jail in Colorado Springs and six months in the Larimer County Detention Center in Fort Collins, where I continued to surrender my life to God. I also began to saturate my brain with His Word. That's where I met a volunteer named Shirley. She visited the jail twice a week to talk with me one-on-one. I didn't know anyone else in Fort Collins except for my co-defendant, Shannon, with whom I was not allowed to associate. Shirley made me a part of her family. She's in her 70s now and still one of my very closest friends. I was expected to go to prison for 25 to 32 years because I was charged with 24 felonies and the habitual three strikes you're out. My pre-sentencing investigation report said I was too far gone for intensive supervised probation. But an ISP officer decided to take me on her caseload anyway, despite that report. I couldn't go to the halfway house because Shannon was already there, so they gave me an ankle monitor. Before going back into the community, I was sent to a rehabilitation program. Even though I knew God had delivered me from drugs, I no longer had a desire to use them. When I returned to Fort Collins after rehab, my ISP officer picked me up at the Greyhound station and took me to a hotel. The next day, I started looking for an apartment. The first place I looked at was owned by a Christian couple. I knew for sure I wasn't going to get that place, The ad was so strict-sounding, with words like credit check, that I knew were not good words for me. I decided to be honest and tell the owner everything. He said he called me that night to let me know. I looked at several other apartments that same day because I was sure I wasn't going to get the first one. But that evening, the landlord called and said he and his wife had prayed. The apartment was mine. My first gift for the apartment was a poster Shirley's son and daughter-in-law gave me. It had a picture of a little girl on roller skates with the caption, I got up again because of Jesus. I saw that poster first thing every morning and was and was reminded I need Jesus every day. I found a job at Wendy's right away and started going to church with Shirley. Then I met Scott, who'd rented the apartment next to mine a month before I moved in. He was a field study biologist and gone a lot, which was probably good because it kept our friendship from moving too fast. He started going to church with me and soon developed a personal relationship with Christ. Shirley mentored me until I got married, spending five to seven nights a week with me for the first few years. She believed I was going to make it, and she believed God wanted her to support me every way she could. Amazing. We still call each other and get together whenever we can. After working at Wendy's for a year and a half, God blessed me with a job selling software. It was a much better job paid quite a bit more, and I found there was something I could do in life besides serve hamburgers. God gave me my worth through that experience, showed me I can do anything through him. I had to dress nice, talk with people, and go to trade shows. Suddenly, I had a career, and I was doing things I'd never imagined myself doing. It was a great experience. When we found out I was pregnant with Abigail, however, there was no doubt in our minds that God wanted me to stay home with our baby. I'm off paper now, no longer on probation or ISP. I have a record, but if God wants to take care of that, He can. I've never felt like it kept me from getting a job or stopped people from talking to me. I've never felt judged by others because of it. Although I'm not proud of my record, I'm not ashamed of where I've been, because where I've been is why I'm where I'm at. I gave God every reason to give up on me, yet He still called my name. When it comes down to What it comes down to for me is that I know without a doubt, Jesus loves me. I'm reminded of that fact every morning when I wake up in a warm house with my wonderful husband and our our sweet little baby nearby. I mentor two girls at Turning Point, a girls' residential home in Fort Collins. We attend 12-step meetings together, and I do a one-on-one with each of them every week. Plus, we go out for coffee or soft drinks once a week. They also go to church with us. We spend a lot of time together. I imagine I'll be working with Turning Point for a long time because I feel that's what God wants me to do. It's one way I can share the wonderful message of that simple little tract: "Smile. Jesus loves you."
0: Wow, good story. Good story, thanks. Couple quotes quotations about winter Roger Horns, uh, Rogers Hornsby said people ask me what I do in winter when there's no baseball I'll tell you what I do I stare out the window and wait for spring <laughs> Victor Hugo said laughter is the sun that drives winter from the human face well in the immortal words of Porky Pig or was it Bugs Bunny that's all folks Thanks for listening.
1: Yes, thank you for joining us on our first podcast. Have a great day, and go live your story.
0: Thanks for
2: listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve... Well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.